Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse Pam McMillan. Ryan, it's another episode. Can you believe it? I, I love these days. I do. It's a lot of fun. I know. And this one's exciting. Um, did your mom ever tell you to drink your milk? Always. Always, always. always. Got to have some healthy bones, right? Healthy bones. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, um, our survivors go through a lot. And sometimes we don't um, always think about all the side effects of chemotherapy. But, um, you know, our bones are so important. And so I'm really excited about our guest today. How about you? I, I, mean, I am too. You know, we, we, we go to the experts and there's no doubt uh, we have one today. Um, and, you know, talking about bones and the building blocks and the, the main focus is where we're going to dive in. But let's talk about our guests and let me introduce our guests. We're super excited to have uh, Dr. Andrea Singer. Uh, um, amongst all of her titles, she is the Chief Medical Officer for the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Uh, Dr. Singer, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here and very appropriate uh, to represent the National Osteoporosis Foundation, which actually uh, has now become or will today become the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation to emphasize just what you said, that bone health across the lifespan and in all aspects from prevention to treatment of something develops is really important. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, one of the things we always like to talk about with our survivors is um, you know, all we try to encompass just about every potential problem and side effect and things that could happen as a result of, you know, chemotherapy and radiation. And, and yet we want to start at the basics. So let's, let's do that, Dr. Singer. And if you could, let's just discuss really, a, you know, when you hear the word bone density, what does that mean? And why is it important? Well, to start really simply, the more bone we have, good structural dense bone, the better off we are and the less likely we are to fracture. Now, bone density is not the only thing that increases the risk for broken bones or fractures, but it's very important. And so if we think about what normal bone looks like under a microscope, healthy bone kind of looks like a honeycomb. When bone loss starts to occur, and that can happen, people can either lose too much bone, and we'll talk about some of this in a little while, I think, uh, they cannot make enough bone or both, the holes in the spaces in the honeycomb become larger than in healthy bone. There's loss of density or mass and the tissue structure becomes abnormal. And when all of those things happen, the bones weaken and are more likely to break. And what we're most concerned about are bone breaks or fractures because they can be life altering events. Right. Oh yeah. I, and plus, uh, you know, disfiguring, right? I mean, from the the fractures and maybe healing, mishealing in the wrong wrong fashion and so forth. Absolutely. I think the classic thing we think about is when people have multiple spine fractures, right, which they may not always know about. But if you think about the old pictures of the woman with that, what we used to call a dowager's hump, right, the correct medical term is kyphosis, but where she and this can affect men as well, but you know, are bent forward, um, there can be deformities. And once those things occur, 
it's not really reversible in terms of the structural changes or it's very difficult to change. So the idea is to prevent them from happening as best we can. So what kind of tests um, are out there to tell us about our bone density? Before we talk specifically about the bone density tests, I think what we need to realize is there are a number of risk factors and conditions um, that can obviously affect the bones. So all along the way, hopefully people and their healthcare providers are discussing their potential risks because that may trigger when we get a bone density test or when we need to do a further investigation, right? Not based just on age, but looking at the whole person and based on their underlying risk. The gold standard test that's out there is called a DEXA scan or dual energy X-ray absorptiometry. And it's a low radiation tool. It's really simple to do. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes, kind of lie on a table and can look at the ceiling and daydream if you'd like. <laughs> um, but that gives us an assessment of the amount of bone that's there. And there are some machines that have some added features on it, which can also tell us a little bit about the underlying structure or quality. So very easy to do. And so, the, you know, the, the DEXA, how often do they need to think about having a DEXA scan? Is that, uh, does that obviously varies individually, but on average? Yeah, so it does vary individually, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, and there are a number of guidelines that at least talk about when to start getting a bone density scan. If it's just based on age, the guidelines would say age 65 in a woman. Um, if we think about younger postmenopausal women who have an additional risk factor, there are lots of risk factors, we might start earlier, certainly with underlying medical conditions, medicines that increase the risk for bone loss, and then how frequently we do it kind of depends on the results and what we find. So if somebody is normal and they don't have something that's bad for the bone, medical condition, treatments that we'll talk about, then we might not do it again for five years. Um, if somebody has osteoporosis, depending on whether we start treatment or not, I'd say often we repeat in a year to two. And the same for low bone mass or when getting those results might change what we do. And we're probably talking more on like the two-year timeframe. Uh, but you're right. It's very individualized. So some of the factors could chemotherapy or some of the medications that um, breast cancer survivors are on um, affect this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a number of things that cancer patients face can increase the risk for bone loss, osteoporosis, um, and fractures. So it could be caused by the cancer itself but often by the effects that come with many cancer-specific therapies, right? So you mentioned chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is often sort of bad to the bone, so to speak, or I'm not going to sing, I promise, but you get the <laughs> idea, right? Um, and can cause bone loss. Um, some of the hormonal therapies that we use in the breast cancer setting, like aromatase inhibitors, mm -hmm. can be bad for the bone. Um, radiation which is used in some settings. And again, usually it's where there is bone in the background and obviously there's bone in the chest, right? Ribs and all can cause bone loss as well. Um, radiation induced bone loss is often caused by direct damage to bone. Chemotherapy and some of the other drugs can cause bone loss both by direct effects 
on the bone, but also indirect effects, especially if they cause an early menopause, because estrogen from a bone perspective is good and it's good for the bones. And if we reduce the amounts or cause someone to go into menopause earlier, that can cause bone loss. Now we've been talking about women. What about men? So for men, to some degree, it's the same thing. Obviously, we're not going to cause men to go into menopause per se. But for instance, if a man has prostate cancer and is on androgen deprivation therapy, so a medicine that would reduce the levels of testosterone and male hormones that are good for the bone, then that can also be problematic. Chemotherapy, again, can cause direct effects on the bone as well as sometimes affect the interplay between hormones uh, and the rest of the system. Radiation can have direct effects on the bone too. So both genders um, can certainly have complications. You know, these are necessary treatments. The most important thing is that we recognize the risks and then we figure out how best to minimize risks while obviously treating the underlying condition because that's really important. Yeah. So the DEXA scan, um, do you recommend doing it before treatment? I think in a lot of situations, we actually will get a baseline bone density. If we know that someone is going to have receive or undergo a treatment that may increase their risk for osteoporosis and fracture, many practitioners will get a baseline. So then we have something to follow and to compare it to because it's the amount of bone loss, but sometimes it's also how rapidly that's occurring that might make us take action versus follow, you know, and decide at what point we intervene. And again, there aren't absolute cutoffs. There are lots of factors that come into play for each individual patient that helps us then make those treatment decisions. Right. What about what about hereditary issues? Is is osteoporosis? I mean, obviously, we're talking a lot about because our folks, um, you know, from the chemo or radiation or hormone therapy. But what about hereditary concerns? Yeah, this is a family affair um, in two aspects. The first is that there certainly seems to be a genetic predisposition. I don't know that we've fully elucidated all of the genes and the things that can increase one's risk. But we know that if there's a family history of osteoporosis, family history of fracture, especially history of hip fracture in mom or dad, that significantly increases an individual's risk. The other thing that I mention about a family affair is that once somebody has the disease, and especially if they've broken a bone, there are are absolutely consequences for the patient Um, but there are also consequences for caregivers and it affects family members, right? How are you going to get mom or dad or sister or brother or whomever that person might be to their appointments? If they can't walk around or they're less mobile or they can't function independently, somebody's involved in that care. Um, So in many respects, I sort of think about this across the spectrum as a family affair. Gosh, Pam, you know, we talk about that a lot with our, our uh, caregivers and the important roles that they play and how important it is with going through cancer treatment. Yet another area, you know, in, in bone loss and, and osteoporosis of an of, of important role that caregivers play. 
Right. Dr. Singer, let's talk about, so we talked about kind of the, the, the radiation aspect, the chemo, the hormonal therapy, and things like that, that our survivors face. How, how, what are some signs and symptoms of bone loss, or maybe this is beginning to set in? What are some signs and symptoms of that that they should be looking for? That's one of the most challenging aspects, right? Because bone loss itself doesn't cause any symptoms. And osteoporosis has often been called the silent epidemic because it often is a silent disease until somebody has a fracture. But you don't wanna wait until they break something to do something about it, right? Then we're being reactive instead of proactive with screening, with trying to prevent disease. And that's one of the challenges we face, not only in recognition, but then in getting people on board sometimes with treatment because they feel fine. They don't have any symptoms. Why should I wanna do something about it? Um, that's where screening both in terms of discussing risk factors and kind of our risk factor assessment, and then the use of bone density tests uh, become important so that we can try to detect changes in bone loss before uh, it gets all the way down the road, you know, in terms of severe osteoporosis. So when they go to get this bone density test, and it shows normal bone density or osteopenia or osteoporosis. What are the difference between osteopenia and osteoporosis? The differences are kind of arbitrary to some degree. In other words, the World Health Organization defines osteoporosis by a certain bone density, uh, which we define as a T-score, which reflects the number of standard deviations or how far below the normal patient somebody's bone density is. And they use a cutoff score of minus 2.5. That was kind of based on large epidemiologic studies that said people below this level are at higher risk for fracture. But if you think about it, it's a continuum, right? We know that the lower the bone density, the greater the risk for fracture. And there's no bone density that makes somebody safe from fracture. People can break their bones even if their bone density is normal. But we kind of have these groupings of normal, what we used to call osteopenia, but probably the better term is low bone mass, and then osteoporosis. Um, Again, the thing to be most cognizant of is that it's a continuum, that the lower the bone density, the greater the risk for fracture but we need to not take bone health for granted at any stage, regardless of bone density. Does that sort of help or answer that question? Yes. Yeah, it's kind of a sliding scale, if you will, right? I mean, there you go, exactly. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and I know that um, many of our survivors, of course, are, have have talked about this, have been concerned about it, and, you know, um, because of the treatments they've been on, and then, I know that there's a lot of strategies on how to manage this, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. Can we discuss some of those? Absolutely. And maybe we should start with the non-pharmacologic things because those really are important regardless of whether somebody has normal bone, low bone mass or osteoporosis. We wanna prevent things, right? It would be much better to be proactive as opposed to being reactive it is much easier to try to maintain healthy bone than to replace what's been lost. So if we think about non-pharmacologic things, 
and you can stop me at any point if you want to, to discuss it or want me to elaborate more, but this is where a healthy, well-balanced diet comes into play. The things we often focus on, and it, but it's not limited to this, are some of the building blocks for bone, namely calcium and vitamin D. Mm -hmm. We wanna make sure people are getting in enough calcium. Dietary sources are preferred, but if people can't get in enough through the diet, then they can use supplements to make up the shortfall, the amount that they can't get. Vitamin D is important for bone strength. Um, vitamin D has also been shown to be important in terms of fall risk. So if people are deficient, risk seems to be greater for falls. And there aren't very many foods that naturally contain vitamin D, so often we need to supplement with vitamin D. I'd also mention protein. And this may be important, I think, um, in cancer survivors as well, certainly through the acute treatment process where sometimes because of chemotherapy or for other reasons, weight loss uh, ensues and maybe nutrition isn't adequate. You know, this becomes of paramount importance too, but protein is important for muscle strength. As we get older, a lot of times diets become deficient in protein. So we wanna make sure people are getting in enough protein, whether it's through animal or plant-based sources. To kind of move on from diet, if you will, regular exercise is very important. And when we talk about exercise from a bone health perspective, we're talking about not only aerobic exercise, which is important, and you can kind of pick your poison, right? Could be as simple as walking, could be an elliptical, could be a treadmill. Um, we certainly don't want to do things newly that are going to increase the risk for falls, but what's whatever somebody likes and is more apt to do. But also muscle strengthening or resistance exercises are important where somebody kind of moves their body against resistance and against gravity, or you could use light weights or resistance bands. And then especially as people get older, balance exercises and incorporating balance activities are very important too, because as we keep mentioning, a fall is often the precipitating event for a fracture. So doing things that can reduce the risk for falls are important. And not to be too long-winded here, but other things for us to consider are other habits and lifestyle factors. Smoking is bad. I'm not sure what it's good for. So I think if we just don't smoke, that's probably the best approach. Excessive alcohol intake is not good for the bones. Um, excessive caffeine intake, perhaps. The more of these things that we have together, they all sort of you know, work against good, healthy bone. Um, so I, those are a lot of the non-pharmacologic pieces. And, and let me stop there in case there are other things you wanna ask about in terms of what I've said. You know, Ryan, as she was talking, um, I don't know, I could see you writing. Um, I think you and I both have a checklist. We do, we do. It, yeah. it, There's your homework. It's your almost homework like, assignment. Well, and, and it's almost like Dr. Singer has been checking up on what we've been offering here at the Survivorship Center. Right. Wouldn't you agree? So right. let's go back, Dr. Singer, as you were talking about, you know, healthy, well-balanced diet, the calcium and vitamin D and protein. And all I could hear, Pam, is Whitney, our dietitian, talking about ways to increase your protein, ways to increase, you know, and have a balanced diet, plant-based diet, uh, avoiding uh, sugars and, and 
avoiding alcohol and things like that, but, but to have a colorful plate, you know, and well-balanced and um, getting it from food rather than supplements. And that I was just like, I was thinking, that's exactly what Whitney says. And I'm well, thinking, good. I, great minds think alike, right? <laughs> that's right. You can get um, calcium and vitamin D from other things besides milk. That's right. That's yeah, right. You can. Yeah. I mean, dairy products have the biggest, or foods that are fortified, like nut milks and other things, give you sort of the biggest bang for your buck in terms of the amount that you need to ingest, um, you know, and the calcium content there. So that's often why we focus on some of those products. And dairy products also have protein. Uh, but certainly there are lots of other sources, food sources that do leafy greens, kale, collards, bok choy, um, almonds, certain nuts, prunes, and other dried fruits. Ounce for ounce, if those are your only sources, you need to eat much more of them to try to reach the recommended amounts, which from all sources for women 50 years of age or older are, is a total of 1200 milligrams a day in divided doses. But everybody, there are you know, great references online that can sort of look at the amount of calcium in a serving of these different foods. And people can try to figure out kind of where they are and how to make changes based on their own preferences or other medical conditions. And I think working with a dietitian or nutritionist, especially if somebody's underweight or has had significant weight loss or maybe has side effects from some of the medications um, can be very helpful to help gain or maintain a healthy weight and think about other ways to incorporate some of these nutrients. Right. And we've often talked to, and our listeners, if they've been listening to our podcast with any regularity, we have talked about how the classes and the activities we have here at the center are not just things that we were like, why don't we have a yoga class? That sounds fun. Or why don't we have a walking group? I mean, everybody can walk. I mean, our classes are designed specifically to help in specific ways, right? Right, right. And so uh, Dr. Singer says, well, let's have regular exercise. Well, we have at least every single day, we have some form of an exercise or wellness class um, that focuses on either aerobics or, you know, or the uh, stretching and walking and anaerobic or muscle strength. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about walking and we talk about all the time, just simply being active at whatever level a survivor feels like at the moment, during treatment, after treatment um, is better than just being sedentary. Absolutely. I think what people don't realize is when people are sedentary, it can cause not only bone loss, but people can lose muscle mass as well. And you know, there's this big interplay between bones and muscles, right? Muscles help support our bones. Mm -hmm. If you have weaker muscles, you're more likely to fall. And if you fall on weak bones, they're going to break. And so this whole uh, concept of frailty, the two in combination leading to frailty is of concern. I think your other point is really important. Um, all activity counts. So if somebody either doesn't have the time, but time we can manage, but let's say because of treatment or whatever's going on, you know, they can't do 30 minutes at a time or 50 minutes. All activity counts. So if you can get up and do several shorter walks 
or you park a little bit further away when you go somewhere, or you take the stairs instead of the elevator, all of that exercise and weight bearing helps bones remodel and also builds muscle and helps repair micro damage. So that's very important. And it sounds wonderful in terms of what you're able to offer at the center to, to help people. One of the other classes that I really enjoy because um, it's a, it's, it tends to be one of our larger classes, but it seems like they have a lot of fun is our balance class. And so we, we work with uh, one of our cancer exercise specialists and she teaches balance and they work on, on every, most of it is sitting or uh, holding on to something and, and, and engaging those core muscles and working on balance. Because as you just mentioned, Dr. Singer, as, they, as we age and we become a little more seasoned, balance becomes an issue. And we try everything possible to help prevent those fractures by working on our balance. That's wonderful. Uh, I think in general, um, we don't spend enough time, not you, because it sounds like you guys do, but in general, and as healthcare providers, we don't always spend enough time assessing gait and balance and falls risk. There are some simple things that providers can do in the office or actually even via telehealth. Uh, but the, the important point is, if there is a concern for gait and balance, either assessing it oneself or if not, referring people to physical therapy uh, for a formal assessment and then engaging in activities that work to improve and maintain balance becomes really of paramount importance, especially as we get older. Yes. So before we jump into the pharmacologic uh, resources and management, I just want to talk to our survivors that are listening um, and, and just remind you guys Everything here at the Survivorship Center has a purpose, and it's not um, its not to come in and get sweaty and work out and hit the punching bag. It's really designed to, to meet you where you are. Um, in a walking group, we have a more uh, faster group, and we have a more, I want to enjoy the pace group. Um, you know, we, we design everything to where it, it fits everyone who shows up. And the cool thing is, Pam, what does it cost them? Free. It costs you nothing. And What's that's better than free. Better than free. I mean, it, it, it is entirely complimentary. Um, we, and, and it's for you and your caregiver, your loved one, your spouse, what, whoever you, know, you want to bring with you. Um, it's entirely free. Uh, both the water exercise, which is great too, because that's non-weight bearing. So you, you, know, you get the water resistance. Um, our walking class, yoga, tai chi, um, Qigong ba balance class. You know, we also just to let our survivors know, we have with our cancer exercise specialist, we give you three individual one on one sessions with her at whatever time in choosing and intervals that you want. And um, those are moments to really kind of hone in on those specific questions and specific needs that you have. And again, we're not we're not trying to train you to hit the punching bag or get you ready for a marathon. We're simply taking, you know, moving you down the field. That's our goal is to take you where you are and, and move you down the field uh, by way of all these wellness classes. And oh, by the way, we do have some fun stuff too, right, Pam? 
We do. We have lots of fun things um, that could help with your bone health, such as hiking. We go to Pelodur Canyon and we have some really cool hikes out there. Um, we do art and we have a support group and there's massage therapy. So there's something for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Singer, let's jump into some of the pharmacologic management options. Sounds great. Um, I think the way I would frame it is that there are two major umbrellas of osteoporosis medicines, if you will. There is a class of medications that we call our osteoanabolic, sounds like a mouthful, but basically bone building drugs. They work primarily to stimulate the cells that build more bone, increase the amount of bone that's there, the strength of the bone, and then importantly, reduce fracture risk. And our other umbrella are what we call our anti-resorptive drugs. They work primarily to slow bone breakdown. We can get some increase in bone density with them as well. And most importantly, they too reduce the risk for fractures. How we start, so we have a number of different things in the armamentarium, and I'm happy to delve as deeply into it as you would like, but where we start, how we choose the medication, really is based on the individual. We certainly have guidelines that direct us toward uh, thinking about how we pick our first line agent. Um, and some of that is based on how high risk a patient might be for fracture. You could imagine if somebody is at the very highest risk, you might wanna start with a drug that's going to primarily build bone. Um, and anybody that we treat is high risk, we're not going to over-treat people who don't need to be treated. But if you're sort of lower high risk, uh, then we might start with a drug that maintains bone and, and all. But we also need to take into account other individual factors, including other medical problems, history of cancer. Um, for instance, there are some medicines that if somebody has had radiation to the bone might not be appropriate. Um, you know, so based on other treatments someone is getting, uh, we might either have a contraindication or there are a couple of medicines that have been studied specifically in the setting of bone damage that can result from certain types of cancer treatments, aromatase inhibitor therapy use, androgen deprivation therapy use. And so we might lean toward one of those specific agents if we have a patient who is receiving one of those therapies. So there are lots of different things that go into choosing a medicine. The important point is we have very good medicines used in the right setting in people who are at high risk for fracture. The benefits of these medicines almost always far outweigh the risks, right? Nothing we do in life is risk-free. Certainly people who have had cancer and been treated with chemotherapy and other agents have had discussions about balancing benefits versus risk. And so I'm probably in some ways preaching to the choir. But what we have to balance when we talk about treating osteoporosis, it's not just the benefits and risks of the medicines. That has to be balanced against the risk of the underlying disease and the consequences of a fracture and doing nothing. And that's how we should have that kind of benefit-risk discussion. Sounds like they need to communicate with their physician. Absolutely. 
um, and you know, and find somebody who is comfortable discussing all of the pros and cons. Uh, osteoporosis and treatment decisions can be somewhat complicated, as with every area in medicine, there are nuances and there are specialists. The beauty of osteoporosis is it doesn't belong to any one specialty. Anybody can treat it. The double-edged sword part of that is everybody always thinks somebody else is going to do it. And so sometimes it falls through the cracks, but there are certainly people from different specialties who consider themselves as we lovingly call ourselves boneheads. My children are not supposed to call me that, but I can say that. Um, but somebody who focuses on bone health, you know, so if you feel like you're not getting all of the information that you need, find somebody in your community or you know, wherever that may be who can really have an informed discussion with you so you can make the best treatment choices. Yet another example, Pam, of being your own advocate is the best way to go. That's right. Is there a website that our listeners could go to learn more about bone health and prevention and all the Absolutely. things? <laughs> so the website I'm going to give you, the first and easiest to remember is nof.org. That's the National Osteoporosis Foundation's website. But as I alluded to in the beginning of this conversation, we are changing our name to the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation to really reflect the fact that we need to pay attention to not just those who have developed osteoporosis, but people of all ages and walks of life and how to prevent that from happening, right? This is bone health across the lifespan. Right. And all so right. the new URL, but if you go to the, if you just remember the old one, it will take you there. So not a problem. The new URL is bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. All one word and the word and spelled out. Awesome. It's, it's that's okay to Google. <laughs> that is okay to Google. And like I said, if people forget and they still Google NOF, for now it will redirect them to where they need to go. And then hopefully our you know, our new name and um, sort of objectives and purpose will become clear. Uh, I think the idea is, you know, as, as with cancer, right, our goal is to screen and prevent where we can, and then to detect early so that we can intervene when outcomes uh, are hopefully more favorable. Um, and if disease does occur to treat it appropriately, and it's the same with bone health. Uh, I mean, I'm not likening the two exactly, but same concepts with bone health in terms of encouraging women and men to be proactive, uh, be their own advocates, come up with a bone health plan to keep bones healthy. And if something should uh, evolve to detect it early so that we can intervene and treat appropriately. Absolutely. We've learned a lot today, haven't we, Ron? A lot. And it sounds like we knew a lot. <laughs> you know, I think just, you did. Well, we 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 did our homework, but I tell you, you know, it's ever evolving, right? Much like everything in medicine and and um, genetics and so forth, and and uh, the, the you know, while a lot of the things are the standard, you know, utilization and ways to treat and prevent and so forth, I know that there's lots of things on the on the horizon, especially with 
um, the pharmacologic manners. But, um, you know, I think this is great information. I know our survivors, um, this is something that is important, especially, or they're talked to about, especially those breast cancer patients, right, Pam? That's right. And, you know, Dr. Singer, we like to leave our listeners with the Pete's powerful moment, and we would love to hear your moment if you would like to share it. Sure. I, I think about this because it's something that as providers, we don't always think about how different diseases or conditions can affect our patients. You know, we sometimes get a little bit focused and don't think outside the box. So, picture, well, you haven't seen me, so I'm still a young attending, but you could picture an even younger attending, okay, who had sort of just started her career. Um, and I had a patient who was referred to me, she was in her 70s, and had unfortunately had a number of spine fractures, vertebral fractures before she ever came to see me. And so she used to come into the office either early in the morning or at the end of the day. Anybody who knows the DC area knows those are the worst times to commute. And she was retired. So I would say to her, why not try to come at a different time of day when traffic won't be so bad and it might be easier to get here? Because of the spine fractures she had, it had changed her appearance. She had that sort of kyphosis or what we used to call a dowager's hump. She didn't like her appearance. She said she couldn't find clothes that fit correctly. And so she came to the office at the times where she thought there would be the least number of people in the waiting room or around who would have to see her. Limited her social interaction, her desire to go out. And you know, I had to step back for a moment. That for me was powerful because I thought about the physical consequences and other aspects and pain, but to think about the change in self-esteem and body image, the mood changes that can come with osteoporosis and fractures, uh, you know, that's just sort of an example. We have to listen to people and think about um, what their concerns may be and make sure that we ask. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the things we talk about with our survivors is um, you know, asking those questions, if, if, if you don't ask them, the physician thinks, you know, things are great, you know, and, and if someone says, how are you doing? Don't just say, well, I'm great when maybe you're not, you know, I'm concerned about my bones. Should I have the, you know, those are the kinds of questions we encourage our survivors to bring up with their, their provider. Agreed. Sounds important. Yes. Yes. Pam, I, I tell you, um, there's a lot here to digest. And uh, Dr. Singer, thank you so much for sharing all this, uh, taking time um, and, and educating us, but educating our survivors. We certainly appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Pam, what do we need our survivors to do? What do we need our listeners to do? We would love for them to share, like, subscribe to our podcast, and we want to get this podcast out to as many survivors out there, and there is lots of information, so make sure you go back to um, check out all the episodes we have recorded. If you want more information about the center, please give us a call, 806-331-2400. Absolutely. And, and I'll just remind, echo what Dr. Singer said about uh, going to uh, bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. Spell out the word and. That's a great resource for you guys. If you have further questions uh, regarding osteoporosis and bone density, that's a, a perfect resource for you to go to. And then make sure that you join us next week for another great episode of Beyond the Ribbon. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.